Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. Hi, listeners. Welcome to another episode of I Am Speaking with Shailu Kosha. Today, we are speaking with Don Kezerly, who is a throwback friend. Huge throwback, right. To Kosha's eighth grade year in Orland Park. Yeah. So when we moved from Streeter, and our longtime listeners know our story, we lived in Streeter, Illinois, which is a tiny little town. We moved to Orland Park. Um, you were already... I went to IMSA. Yeah, you were. I was already you were, gone. You didn't really. I don't like. Do you ever consider yourself like not live like you're not from Orland? I mean, you're not from Orland, but you didn't really live there either. No, I moved into the dorms the day before you all moved from Streeter. Right. Right. So I actually didn't move into that house. My stuff ended up in that house, obviously, and I came back there when it was time for me to, um, you know, like for come home for weekends and breaks and breaks. stuff. Yeah. 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 Yeah, which is uh, which is weird to, for me to think of. But um, so she was one of the first people I met. We became very, very good friends in eighth grade. We had a a falling out in the uh, kind of middle of high school, which you learn about, mm-hmm. and kind of both of us also learn about in this episode about what happened, like. We didn't really, we haven't really talked about it. I think part of it is like, you're not emotionally mature enough when you're 15, 16 to have those hard conversations. You know, we hear a lot from our guests about how this podcast ends up being somewhat therapeutic for them. And this one was somewhat therapeutic for me. Yeah, I can imagine. I did wonder while I was listening to the two of you. So that it seemed to happen like over the course of like 48 or 72 hours. Correct. And then neither one of you thought to find each other than in school and be like, what happened? So I, I, listeners were able to hear what happened, right. but neither one of you thought to talk about it face to face. When you hear what happened, I was scared to. If you were scared to follow, if you were scared to clear the air with her, I understand. And she was hurt. You know, I guess we are talking about high school friendships or early high school friendships. That's a whole nother, like it does take a little bit more maturity to be like, what the fuck, man? Why did you X, Y, and Z? And the other person goes, I didn't mean to X, Y, and Z. It was a misunderstanding. But somebody has to be willing to risk the what the fuck, man conversation. 
Right. I will say at the toward the end of senior year, uh, so not that much longer. Like this is not the first time we've talked in thirty years, right? It's not like that. Yes. No, it was clear that you guys weren't like wow how the hell are you <laughs> we had definitely mended things to the like we had shoved everything under the rug and at least we had become like nice to each other we weren't avoiding each other in the hallways or anything like that it's just like that was the moment that we really went our separate ways uh-huh it was there was definitely a moment that like caused the turning away from each other mm, so mm-hmm. you'll hear that but that is not the only thing you hear and it is not the most important thing here in this episode trust me listeners you're not going to hear two hours of dawn and kosha rehashing the past and figuring out what wrong between them when they were freshmen in high school <laughs> the interview is far more compelling yeah and and important and but... important yeah than that yeah um she was she was really nervous coming on. Oh God, you can't even tell. No, I, and she took a, I had asked her to come on and she was like, Hey, can I think about it? You know? And she took a couple weeks to think about it. And she came back to me and was like, okay, I want to do it. And then before we started recording, she was like, I decided that if I'm going to do this, I'm just going to go all in with my story. And man, oh man, did she deliver on that? Yeah. The way that she tells her story is one of a lot of hope. Yeah, absolutely. And, and strength, I mean, and, and courage, right? I think what you hear is, is, is hope, is strength, is bravery, is, you know, vulnerability. Those are hard things. And I, um, I'm so glad she came on. I'm so thankful that she shared her story with us. Um, you know, as we talk about mental health, I think unfortunately what we're learning is that we're also talking about trauma. And some forms of mental health have nothing to do with trauma. You know, some forms of mental health come as a result of a you know, sort of brain misfire. Like those didn't actually be like, your brain's not working properly. Yeah, absolutely. There's just an equally important isn't the right word. Yeah, I know what you're trying to say though. Right, that that's one cause, but another cause and they're compounding on each other is that trauma can cause you to engage in thinking patterns, behavioral patterns, which cause, which end up being a mental health problem. What we are learning during this season is that there's a lot of trauma that goes hand in hand with mental health challenges. And sometimes the mental health comes first and sometimes the trauma comes first, but they almost always end up linking arms and walking forward together. Absolutely. And they just make each other stronger which is, you know, why someone like Dawn, it takes a lot of strength to override those two things and um, and say like, no, I'm going to put my story out there. So yeah. we love her. We loved her. The conversation, it was almost like a part of, I was like, I don't need, we don't even need to be here because her story, the way she told it was just so beautiful and how she came across. I didn't want to interrupt her. So um, listen to Dawn. This is an important, 
episode. We say that for every episode, but this is definitely up there with um, a vital episode to listen to. Uh, she is speaking. Hi, my name is Dawn Kesserly, and I am speaking. Hi, Dawn. Hi. Hi. Welcome, Dawn. <laughs> Thank you. Glad to be here. In the spirit of uh, letting our listeners know, because we, over the last couple of seasons, we've had a lot of friends and family on. So, well, maybe less family and more yeah. friends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, we don't like our family, that's why. that's not entirely wrong no um okay focus shilushi but in this in the spirit of 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 that sort of that tradition i'm going to give you and kosha a little time to like catch up and introduce each other and like tell the story of how you met it's always really compelling for our listeners i think it would be great as we you know start our conversation to ground it in that like when and how did you you meet and what's your you know what's your relationship and like so um kosha remind me what grade was it that you moved to orland park because you guys were originally in streeter right yes we were streeter illinois um and then we moved right before my eighth grade year so i so that was orland junior high school right yeah i don't remember specifically which class i mean i'm I'm assuming that we had classes together, right. but I know that we, we became friends eighth grade kind of into like freshman year of high school as well. Right. Um, and we just became that transition. very close, very quickly. Yeah. I would say we had a very intense friendship. Like it, it was, um, we were with each other. We lived near each other too. So we were able to like bike to each other's houses. Um, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I spent a lot of time at your house, which was, it was so awesome because being at your house, your, your family dynamic was so different than ours. My family, very, very strict. Uh, Our parents were like, you know, can't go out all the time. You can't be with your friends all the time. I didn't have like a friendship with my mom. Like it was a very like mother daughter relationship and you really had a very different family dynamic so I I like craved that so I I loved being at your house because I saw a very different way to be in a family yeah (laughs) yeah and I remember um coming to your house I don't think that your parents liked me at first because I remember because my mom always would tell me like what people would say because she's like you know they they don't know what to think of you because you're so quiet. And I know like when I, especially when I was younger and I still sometimes am kind of like this, I think maybe it's an anxiety thing, but I tend to be more quiet when I first meet people. And then I kind of like warm up to them. Like once I feel that level of trust or whatever. So I think at first your mom wasn't sure what to think of me. (laughs) It was like, who is this person? But I, I have a lot of good memories of being at your house. I remember, I mean, that was the first Indian food I ever ate. And I still remember that as being the best Indian food that I've ever eaten since then. <laughs> so Probably. I mean, it's homemade, right? So doesn't compare. 
and then for me I'm like can we stop having Indian food please <laughs> right it's like every day like Indian food so it's just it I do not remember at all my parents not knowing how to take you in I okay. will say we are a very loud family Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think part of it is, you know, you have just a brother, right? And right. there's four of us, you know, me, Shayla, Shay, Spurhan, and Triu. So it was, if you wanted anything, you had to speak up. If you're quiet, then you get, people assume like, you're fine. You don't need anything, right? It's a right. little squeaky wheel thing. I I don't think that my parents like didn't like you or anything like that. I do think we had just moved to the suburbs. So I also think that there was probably an element of like, we don't even know what's going on for, yeah. for <laughs> our parents. So um, yeah. yeah, but then, yeah, we had a really strong couple of years. And then we had a bit, I would say, of a falling out at, you know, in freshman year. And there was a misunderstanding, but then we reconnected toward the end of high school. And then mm-hmm. we've been in touch on and off since then has pretty bit, pretty much been the, the MO. Yeah. My brother, it's funny. He, I had mentioned your name at some point and he was like, oh yeah, how is she and what's she doing and stuff. So he has good memories of you as yeah. well. Um, your brother is younger than you. Yeah. Two and a half years younger than me. Two years. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So it's, it, yeah. And if I mention your name to my parents or something, well, I mean, it'll totally come back. So, yeah. Before we started recording, we we were talking about going up to your lake house. That was the first multi day trip that I was allowed to take on my own away from my parents. And I remember, your mom came over and like literally gave a multimedia presentation to my parents. Did she really? I don't remember that. Well, she was like, she brought pictures and she was like prepared to be like, this is the safety aspect. This is the deal. It is, you know, Don's grandparents who've been going up there forever, like had to seriously pitch the trip to my parents because they were, they were just so strict about like, yeah, why do you have to go on this trip and this and that? And isn't it like an hour and a half away from Chicago? Like it wasn't even that far. No, it's not. <laughs> so I just remember, I remember that. And then we went to Africa together. We went on safari yes. together. Okay. You should probably, you should probably contextualize that statement a little bit. Right. right. That you didn't just up and go to Africa. No. Oh, that would make a better <laughs> story though. My world history teacher, he, took kids on like an overseas trips every summer Mr. Hart yeah Mr. Hart it was going to be the last summer that he was doing it and he'd always wanted to go on safari and so um I really really wanted to go and then I wanted Don to come and so we I remember we went to the like presentation meeting and stuff like that and I think you were surprised that your mom let you go on that trip well yeah because Initially, after that presentation, you know, we went home and she talked to my dad and my mom was just like, you know, it's really expensive. And she wasn't, you know, and I understood it wasn't like I was disappointed. It was just kind of like I figured it would just be like a pipe dream. But um, I knew that you were going at that point. And I mean, obviously excited for you, but it was 
Christmas of that year, I had, my mom gives me this box and it didn't feel like there was anything in it. So I'm like, what is this? And I open up the box and there's just like all these cut out pictures of like African animals and like scenery and stuff like that. And I just like looked at her and she, I said, but we didn't do the deposit. The deadline already passed. She's like, Kosha, you know, she gave them fund or the check or something to you so that my deposit was in and it was uh, my surprise uh, for Christmas. So I had no clue uh, until Christmas morning <laughs> when I opened up that box and I was like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's such a cute story. Yeah. yeah. We packed a that's why I say like it was an intense it Yeah, there was, was a, a lot. Short, <laughs> it was a lot. It was like a lot of things in a short amount of time, even though like we kind of drifted apart. Um, toward the end of high school, it was like I still look back on it with such such lovely fondness because oh I do too yeah we did a lot of I don't even remember did. what the falling out was over I mean I'm sure it was like some silly teenage drama but it was and I do absolutely remember this you do okay yeah. Kosha hey Don Kosha remembers almost everything <laughs> I'm like uh oh. <laughs> I'm about to get called out. So this might actually be like, no, 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 you're not going to get called out. This actually <laughs> might be a good segue into, you know, talking just about, about some things because, uh, so there was, we were supposed to be going to a birthday party of somebody else and there was a misunderstanding because I had my, it was sophomore year. So I already had my driver's license and I said that like, it was something like, let me know I can drive you you thought that meant I'm going to drive you. And I thought that meant, let me know if you need a ride. Okay. So then, and I, and then, so I never showed up because I didn't pick you up for the party. Yeah. And then you were very upset, understandably, because there was a misunderstanding, but I called you the next day, like totally oblivious. Like I had no idea right. you were upset <laughs> and your mom answered the phone and she let me have it. No way. Yeah. Yeah. She was like, my daughter was sitting, doesn't oh, know, like man. she wanted to go to the party and this and that. And she, and I was blind. I had no idea that I had done anything wrong. Right. Wow. Like, and yeah, that, that kind of was the, the, the catalyst. Like you said, teenage drama, misunderstanding. I, and I was so, I was so embarrassed because your mom was like yelling at me on the phone and stuff. And, you know, I think part of it looking back and I go like, wow, your mom was so, she was like your defender, but she also wouldn't let me talk to you. Yes. And that makes a lot of sense to me right now. <laughs> um, gosh, you know, I struggled for a really long time as a kid to make friends and I think you know part of her being so involved you know even with like the the lake trip and making sure like advocating like you know this is okay and she just she really I think she was really happy that I had made a connection with somebody and had a friendship with somebody because I know that she worried about me for a lot of years and now like as an adult you know, just thinking back. And even now my mom was definitely an extrovert. I am an introvert. 
And I, I think that's where she kind of struggled with, you know, she has to have friends and she needs to have friends. And, mm. you know, for me, it was kind of like, I was fine playing piano by myself, <laughs> you know, or just spending time in my room by myself reading or, you know, whatever. So, yeah. you know, I think it for her, it was, she was excited that I had this connection. And so she was trying to like, kind of help that, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gosh, I, didn't know that honestly I don't know even know if I knew at the time that my mom had that conversation with you like I'm just learning this now <laughs> yeah it's very possible that you didn't know because she definitely took it like especially what you're saying is being involved that she was trying to head off any conflict that you might have and you know it, interestingly I keep saying like our, our family dynamics were so different and they were but my parents also were so heavily involved overly involved to today's standards right in terms of but they but they were like a, a kind of a one step distance of involvement where it was like you're just not allowed to do those things right or they were yeah. really heavily involved with like academics and extracurriculars like that you can do so much you can't do more than that like I was really heavily involved in theater and they would get so upset that I, you know, during the week of the show, I would get home at 10 o'clock. Like, what do you, this whole, like, this is not a hotel kind of, you know, like you only come here to sleep and we never see you. They were really involved too, but just in a really different way. So I think we probably have similar frustrations when it comes to the overall, you know, feelings that we have of our, of our childhood. I mean, I, your mom obviously intended the best. Oh, Yeah. She definitely did. Um, I think there was also an added level of her needing to protect me because of past sexual abuse that happened with a caretaker of me and my mm -hmm. brother. And so I know that that was devastating as a parent to find out that your six-year-old daughter has been repeatedly assaulted yeah right by somebody and so that was another reason I think that I was I was more like drawn into myself more introverted because you know I, I do remember at that time feeling like I knew this was not happening to other kids and so it it, it was it was isolating to me you know being I want to say I was maybe second grade it was very isolating, you know, and, and so once my parents did find out about what was going on, you know, I, I had been having symptoms of trauma that I think my parents just weren't educated at the time that when your kid starts sleepwalking and wetting the bed out of nowhere, mm -hmm. something's going on, you know, it's, it's that those, those physical reactions to the trauma and so once they found out I was put into counseling and I know that it was like devastating to my parents. And because I was that kid that was kind of like, I always wanted to make my mom happy. I didn't, I never wanted to disappoint her. It was like, you know, a lot of times I would even kind of make decisions based on whether I thought it would, my mom would approve versus what I really wanted because it was just that need to like, I don't want her to be upset. And so I never really talked about it anymore with them. I know I was in therapy for a period of time, you know, around the time I was six going, probably going into seven years old. 
And I felt like I was being punished for what happened to go because to I had to go. Yeah. Because I had to go and talk to this stranger about it and I didn't want to. Um, I, I actually remember like she had toys and stuff and I remember sitting there like playing with toys and just ignoring her. Like she kept trying to talk to me. And I, I mean, I don't know how long this went on, but I remember going in there and like refusing to speak for at least a couple of sessions and then whatever breakthrough happens, you know, I, I opened up about it and talked about it. And then I want to say there was like a set period of sessions. And, you know, I've talked to my therapist about this now and I'm like, maybe it was an insurance thing. I don't know. You know, I know my parents, a lot of times when I was younger, like money, you know, they struggle for money and stuff like that. So I think they did the best they could. The issue that I didn't realize is that this, I carried this with me for up until probably this year, I had this huge breakthrough on this and didn't even realize that this was like still affecting me as an adult. Um, and I think part of that was, you know, just my family is more, I feel like blue collar and it, I was always as a kid, it was like, you're too sensitive. You're too sensitive. Well, I've learned now. Yeah. I'm more sensitive than they are. I'm highly sensitive but I'm not too sensitive. So the too sensitive part makes it sound negative. And so as a kid, it was like that. I think that also made me not talk about it with family members, you know, going into like teenage years, my mom got sick when I was 18 and she died when I was 19. So I think that kind of like overshadowed, you know, I lost that person that, I mean, yeah, she, she failed to protect me as a kid, but I think she very strongly tried to make up for it after that. And so that, that conversation that she had with you, I definitely think it was driven by her need to like, nobody's going to hurt my daughter again. Right. So yeah, it's, it's, it's funny to hear that. I was like, wow. And then, and it makes sense that to me that she would react that way. Yeah. I'm sorry if that was an uncomfortable conversation for you. I it, I mean, it was, of course it's, it, you know, be confrontation is, rarely comfortable I don't hold any like ill will now you know and I I found out several years ago that your mom had passed and that's kind of how we reconnected at the time was just like I have these I have wonderful memories of your mom and being at your house and it was the like I said that was absolutely the first time that I realized that like you could actually grow to become friends with your mom it was illuminating for me. She kept the the line of authority because her and I would talk about that. She's like, you know, there are parents who are too much their kid's best friend. And she's like, it's tricky because then if you try to discipline, the kid's going to feel like, you know, why is my best friend betraying me or something like that? You know what I mean? So she always, she talked to me about that. She's like, you know, it's hard as a parent to try and keep that like line of friendship and like open communication, but then also keep like the, the authority or the disciplinary aspect. Like I'm you know. still your mother, right? Yeah. And still your mom. So well, and I, I will say like, you know, you mentioned internalizing the trauma of the abuse from when you were a kid talking about as close as we were for two and a half years, this right now is the first time I've ever heard that that happened to you. Yeah. 
when something so horrific happens, we compartmentalize it, right? We lock it away. And like you didn't, we, we never talked about, I didn't, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. First of all, that that happened to you, how horrific, but like, I had no idea that that had happened to you. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I met you like what, just a handful of years after that, you know, it's, you know, now looking back at it, like relatively, it's like, it was pretty short timing and it was probably still really fresh in my mind. So I think that's, I mean, definitely where my mom wanted to cultivate that friendship because she was just like, Oh, you know, she has a friend now. (laughs) As you were saying that, when you said your mom's an extrovert, I was like, your mom is looking at your life through her own eyes and saying, if that were me, I would be so miserable. I'd be so exhausted. Right. I need friends. I need socializing. So she must too, instead of being able to say, um, or just be like, well, not everyone operates that way. So as, you know, as we sort of come out from memory lane and move into you know, the, an interview, although the memory lane was a really great way to, to, you know, sort of set the stage because it sounds like if I, if I heard and understood it correctly, it's that that you had some pretty significant trauma early in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that did affect both how you interacted with the world for a long time, but also, you know, you had, it sounds like what you're saying is you hadn't even fully processed that trauma until fairly recently no and and what was mind-blowing about it for me is (laughs) it's like I guess because I just didn't realize that it was still affecting me you know you kind of like or at least for me I pushed it down for so long and you just kind of carry and then like I said my mom passed away when I was 19 and then that started a whole nother trauma so it was like trauma compounded with more trauma my relationship with my dad is, is not good. And so I struggled with that in my twenties. That was traumatic. I had a failed marriage around the time I was 30. And so it was like, you know, looking back, you know, especially in like early, you know, like around 2010, 2011, when, you know, that was all going on with the divorce and all that, I started thinking like, what is wrong with me? (laughs) Like, why, it, it just seems like when I think about it, it's like, there, it's just bad things keep happening. And I, I didn't really know what to do with that information. I just figured like, like I was on this weird journey. Um, and I mean, the, the divorce actually ended up being like kind of the catalyst for me moving to Dallas because right around the time it was right after I got divorced, I got a call from a recruiter And she was like, Hey, would you ever think about relocating for a position? And I was like, well, it depends on where. And she said, Dallas. And I said, yes, (laughs) because my best friend from college lives here. So I had been coming to visit, you know, over the years to see her. So I knew I was somewhat familiar with Dallas. Um, And also the day that the recruiter asked me that question, it was 25 below zero in Chicago. (laughs) Sounds great. Like tomorrow? Do you want me to be tomorrow? I'm like, can I just pack up? What's up? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I didn't really think that it would come to fruition. It was just kind of like, well, yeah, I would consider moving there. And then I kind of did a series of interviews and then didn't really hear anything. And then all of a sudden I had a job offer in, you know, May of 2014 and I moved to Dallas in June of 2014 
And I, you know, I, I get down here, I feel like, okay, it's a fresh start. I can start, but I was still struggling. I mean, basically your, your problems follow you until you really like process things. You know, it's, it's still always going to be there, even if you change your scenery. So I think I was just kind of in, I don't know, I, I, I attribute it to like, or compare it to, um, being on like autopilot. I was good. Like I, there were times where I was like better, but I was never really like really good. So I'd have these like glimpses of like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing well, but now kind of looking back, it's like, yeah, I don't think I was ever really doing well. I think I, I honestly had some depression for, I don't know, 15 years maybe. And just was just kind of like, oh, this is just how I am. Um, and then through COVID, you know, you're alone at home, at least for me, because I, I live alone. I did not have Lily at the time. <laughs> um, you're very cute and passed out dog behind you. Yes. So we've already bored her. She's like, oh my God, stop. Yeah, she's like, I've heard this story. <laughs> um. <laughs> this is not treats. This is not taking a walk. This right. It's not getting pets. It's just blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like just my mom talking. That's what I listen to every day when she's working. So yeah, through COVID, I mean, I think everybody had their fair share of struggles in different aspects to so people who are at home working from home with kids and having to do school online I mean I just can't even imagine an, the nightmare that that was you know and for me it's like well I don't have to deal with that I mean I'm just at home all the time which as an introvert you would think I'd be good with but you know there's also such a thing as like too much time alone and it just it was completely off balance it was like from one you know just completely off balance and yeah that I mean that is true I think a lot of people found that like I've, and I would say even um, a lot of extroverts found that things that they did were not what they wanted to do right I had a friend who coined the term intentionally extrovert which is like don't just do the thing just because it's fun to do um, and because you can but like really think about like how you want to spend your time and I think a lot that was probably the one thing that everyone did during COVID which is like what do I really want to be doing? Because it's not this. Yes. Right. Exactly. It's not like literally sitting alone in a room all day long. It's somewhere between this and everything. Right. Right. Some obviously between nothing and everything, but like, that's always, that's going to be different for everyone. But even the most introverted of people are like, I don't want to be by myself all the time. Right. That's also not good. Like I need some connections every once in a while, you know? Yeah. So, well, and like introvert as introverts, we're all already in our heads so much yeah. where we're like thinking about everything and, you know, we're, we're kind of alone with our thoughts a lot. And I'm like during COVID that I, my thoughts are too much. Like that's, I need to be <laughs> not with my thoughts. Yeah. I was like while. drowning in them. I mean, it was like, oh my gosh. And it was, it got pretty bad. I mean, in at the time you have to think like work related stuff was also intense because they had furloughed people. They had let people go because of the pandemic. I, I work in corporate relocation. So I manage employees benefits who are being moved with their, their company. And so during COVID, all of that stopped, but we were still busy because the people that were on assignments, like maybe long-term assignments overseas wanted to get home and it was very sure. difficult to like 
book flights for them because flights kept getting you know, delayed or canceled. And so these people are like yelling at me. I just, you know, what can you do? Well, I can't, I can't send Air Force One over there to pick you up. I wish I could, (laughs) you know, but I mean, it it was just very high anxiety. And so I'm absorbing all of that in the, in the meantime. And it was around December of 2020. I was not in a good place. Um, I know that I was like leaning into drinking a bit too much to kind of try to cope. Cause I think a lot of people did that during COVID. Heck yeah. Yes. Yeah. Or it was just like, I'm going to have a drink cause I deserve it. Cause I, you know, we're dealing with all of this stress. Well, it's every day, every day just stretches out into the next. Right. So what became a five o'clock cocktail is now four, now three. Now, why don't I just have a glass of wine with lunch? Because I could keep working till eight o'clock at night. There's, there's no delineation between work and home anymore. So it's all what it's all mixed up. Nothing matters at all. Right. Yeah. It was this like weird kind of meandering through life. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, with the workload and the stress from, you know, transferees and stuff, talking with them. And I, um, I, you know, looking back, I can kind of see the decline. And it was the first week of January of 2021 that I now was like only sleeping a couple hours a night. I would, I, so with my anxiety, I can fall asleep, but then I will wake up like two or three hours later and whatever it is that's bothering me is the very first thought in my head. And then once that loop starts, I, I can't fall back asleep. So I wasn't sleeping. I my hands were shaking every day. Like I, I mean, I was like on edge every day and it was exhausting. I mean, I would get on a call with, you know, either my manager, like a transferee, I would hold it together for the call. And as soon as I would hang up, I would just like burst into tears. Like I just, I, I couldn't even manage my emotions and it was scary. I mean, I reached out to my therapist at the time and I was just like, I need help. Like I, this is what's going on. These are the physical symptoms that I'm having. I feel like I'm losing my mind. I haven't slept. And she was like, okay, she gave me the phone number for a mental health hospital. That's, um, in the next town over very close to me. And she said, call them and ask if you can schedule an evaluation, you know, hung up with her cried again, and then called (laughs) to make the evaluation appointment, which luckily they had one for the following afternoon. And that happened to be a Friday. So I was like, okay, 2 PM Friday. I just need to make it until then I'm going to get help. And I had told my therapist, I was like, you know, I don't want to be an inpatient because I don't think that I need that. And she said, you know, they do have these outpatient programs. So just call and find out what the options are. And, and I was like, okay. Um, and then she did say to me, cause I was, I've always kind of been against anti-depression medications and I, she knew that about me. I was like, you know, I really just kind of want to work through this with therapy, but the way she put it to me at the time, she's like, you know, if you were burned, you would put ointment on it. And so you need to think of it that way. Like this isn't necessarily forever and medications have changed since I just had a bad experience right after my mom died, where it was like here. And they just like gave me depression meds and I just didn't have a good experience with them, like side effects. And I think I was just on the wrong medication, but I was so young that I just didn't realize to even like say anything. And so I just kept taking it and eventually weaned off of it and then was off of meds for a while. So she was kind of advocating like, Hey, you know, if you're, if you're hurt, 
you would put something on it to fix it. This is what you need right now, probably. So I was like, all right. So I went into the the mental health hospital the next day for the evaluation, cried through the entire thing. And I was <laughs> just feeling like very, very hopeless at the time. And I remember asking him, because he, he explained the IOP programs to me, um, the intensive, intensive outpatient. And I kept asking him, I was like, so I'll get to go home every day. And he's like, yeah, I'm like, okay. And then there was like a few minutes later, I'm like, I don't have to stay, right? (laughs) You're very concerned that you're not going to be locked in there. Like, I just don't, I didn't. Like, I was like, I don't want to be locked up, you know? Right. He was like, no, no, you know, it's voluntary and it's going to be like a group therapy setting. And I'm sure they get those questions a lot too. And, and it's like, no, 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 you brought yourself here. Like, this is your idea. You drove here. Yes. (laughs) He said, yeah, I mean, basically you would file for FMLA and then start Monday. You know, I mean, it was like, okay, so they gave me the forms. I called my HR as soon as I got home after that appointment. I had kind of given my manager a heads up, you know, I was like, hey, I'm going to an appointment. I'm really struggling. And she was, you know, very supportive. And so when I called her, I actually called her before I called HR because I was like, I want you to hear it from me rather than from HR, but I'm going to call them next. Um, and she like cried with me on the phone. It was just like, I'm really proud of you for doing this. Oh. And you, you know, you need to take care of yourself. Super supportive, which I'm extremely grateful for because I was scared. I mean, there was this guilt part of me that was like, now, you know, I knew that all the workload had kind of been shifted from the people who had been let go. So all of us had these high caseloads. And so me leaving would just, you know, push that off onto other people. I don't remember. I think I met with my friend, my best friend that Sunday for brunch, just to kind of like, okay, get prepared for the next day, talking through things. And she was like, you know, how many people have you covered for who are on maternity leave? And I was like, over the years, a lot. I was like, yeah, you're right. I'm probably just overthinking it. I mean, they're probably thinking nothing of me being out other than, okay, I hope she's okay kind of thing, which is exactly what it was. It's just, you know, again, in my own head. And yeah, Monday I I showed up. Monday was probably the hardest day Um, just because, again, you have that fear of, are they going to keep me here? Are they going to, are they going (laughs) to, am I going to talk about things? And they're going to be like, uh, yeah, I think we need to stay overnight. You know, like you're you're not okay, you know. And I was You're like, it's no, it's so much worse than we thought. Yeah, like <laughs> that's what I thought. I was like, they're gonna think I'm nuts. And I mean, you go in and it's just like a small room. Everybody had masks on at the time, so you can't see anyone's faces and you're kind of sitting somewhat distanced from each other, but still in, you know, somewhat of a small room. And they start with um, processing, which is identifying, you know, three feelings that you have right then, describing your high and low from the past 24 hours. And I actually grew to really love that process because, I mean, you would talk about your high and low and then sometimes other conversations would break off and it was just kind of, you really got to know people and kind of bond the, you know, it was my first day and I didn't know, like, you're, you have to share your first day. Like, I mean, there's, there's no getting out of it. And so it was like, well, what's your goal for today? And I just mean like crying and I'm like, just to get through today was my goal. I mean, and they were like, okay, 
you know, good. So was it, so it's intensive outpatient. Was it like you show up at like eight o'clock and you're there all day long? Yeah. It was like eight to three every day. Okay. So yeah, Monday through Friday. Um, school. There is another, um, there was another IOP program, which was, it was virtual meetings and it was only meeting like two to three times a week for several hours. I didn't feel like, cause work was a lot of the stress point for me. So I was like, I would still be working and then like trying to do these appointments and it's virtual. I just, I felt like the in-person being there every day and like not having the work aspect to just, you know, get myself in balance. And yeah, I talked to the psychiatrist that same, that first day as well. He listened to me and, you know, listened to my concerns and then made some like very thoughtful suggestions that turned out to be a great fit. Cause I remember there was a medication that he gave me, not a sleeping pill, um, just something to take at night. That was, you know, it, it was an antidepressant that has more of like a sedative effect. So it was like, take this one at night. I woke up the next day and I just felt like, oh my God, like I had gotten this great night's sleep. And it was like, I already could feel like I felt better. And so it was funny because, you know, I get up in the morning and I'd shower, get dressed and I'm like, okay, it was like, I had somewhere to go again. And cause that had been gone for so long. And I like looked forward to getting it, you know, like making my coffee and getting in the car and going to the hospital so I could go talk to my friends, you know what I mean? And it was, it was good. I mean, I, I ended up being in for, they had recommended uh, two weeks. So 10 days, uh, my insurance came back with, they approved eight days, but when I talked to the therapist, she's like, yeah, they do that. Um, and then if we get to the eighth day and you're feeling like you need, you know, an extra couple of days, they just send a report to the insurance company. And she's like, most likely it'll get, you know, extended. So she's like, don't worry about that. So I ended up only needing the eight days. I felt, you know, by the, the eighth day, I mean, I said to my therapist, I said, I feel like I'm graduating from brain school because we had learned, you know, in, in, not only doing the processing and, and meeting with other adults struggling, it was like some of their problems overlapped with some of the same problems I had or same traumas, I should say, not problems, traumas, or just like family dynamics, you know, father relationship, not being great. And, you know, just being able to share those insights with people. But the other part was there were topics, you know, in the afternoon that we would go over, like, um, assertive communication and setting boundaries and coping skills. And I mean, these all, you know, coping skills you think sound almost like common knowledge, but actually intentionally sitting down and like listing things out. I mean, sometimes, you know, just taking a shower is a coping skill because it makes you feel better. Sometimes like just going out and taking a walk. I mean, it's, it's some, sometimes it's just like very simple things, just watching a show that you like on Netflix, you know, <laughs> taking that time for yourself to like decompress whatever it may be. So kind of opening my eyes on that, I, I felt very empowered. I know the assertive communication was a big one for me. I, I, again, I think growing up with an extroverted mother, I tend to <laughs> tended to be more passive in communication, she was the, I would say she was probably more aggressive communication. And what we learned is that like, you want to be right in the middle where it's not aggressive, it's not passive, because, you know, 
you're just communicating what it is that you need to this person. And so I was like practicing the I statements, like I need this, or I'm feeling this instead of the aggressive where it's like, you did this to me and you made me mad, you know? So, um, that was extremely beneficial for me, especially from the work aspect, because I, I was tending to like not speak up when the workload was getting too much. And I would just keep taking it, taking it, taking it. Well, you know, after the mental health program that I did, um, I went back to work with like a whole fresh mindset and I was like, I'm not letting them do this to me again. You know, I'm, I'm going to take care of myself and make sure that, you know, I'm speaking up and, and telling them when it's, it's too much, you know, and around that point, I mean, people still, or companies still weren't rehiring again, you know, yet. Um, that was early in 20, in 2021. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I got out of the outpatient, um, continued therapy with my therapist, and then I decided I wanted to lose 30 pounds and I did. <laughs> and then I decided that the job that I was, that current position that I was in at the time, no longer fit my mental needs. health journey really yeah, yeah, yeah my what needs. you needed right so um yeah it was July of 21 that I got a job offer with an, another relocation company um based out of Minnesota and it's permanent remote so I mean I still get to work from home um which I've kind of grown into a routine of enjoying because you know, it gives me the chance to go work out in the middle of the day. Whereas like when you're in an office, you, I mean, I don't understand how people work out in the middle of the day when you work in an office. I can't, I sweat too much. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, mm, they're not going to like me very much if I come back <laughs> after the gym. So yeah, like being able to go in the middle of the day and, you know, have that mental health break or that coping skill, you know, to keep me balanced. And then I, I'm with a company right now that I can be very open with my manager about mental health. I don't want to say he gives me advice, but you know, I'll, I'll mention things to him. I'm like, well, you know, this is bothering me because of this. And he knows, you know, when I'm, I'm sharing things with him that it's because of this level of trust. And we've talked about trust before. So um, one of the things that I've learned as an adult that stemmed from that childhood trauma is that I, I don't, I'm working on this, but I, I haven't historically had any level of trust with adults. So it makes sense, right? Because the adults in my life when I was a kid failed to protect me. Now that wasn't intentional on their part. I'm not placing blame, but I mean, just the, the fact is I wasn't protected. Also, you were six. So it's very difficult for a six-year-old to be like, well, this person failed to protect me. It's not their fault because, you know, they didn't realize like as a six-year-old, it's, it's way more black and white, right? Like yeah. I was hurt. This person's job is to protect me from getting hurt. I was betrayed and failed by adults right. in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I ended up because I switched jobs, I had to switch therapists. And at the time I was like, I'd been with my old therapist for like four or five years, but I was like, you know, maybe she's carried me as far as she can. And maybe this is an opportunity to like, kind of get a fresh perspective with someone else. 
And so I, I tried to look at it in that way. And I'm, I'm glad that I did because I, I remember the first meeting with my new therapist or not new, but um, newer, she's young. I, I would say twenties. And so I'm like, what is this girl going to know? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, baby. Yeah. I know. I'm like, what life experience does she have? I'm going <laughs> to blow her hair back with all this information. <laughs> So, um, but she's been great. Like she gives me, you know, just a, a different, I think, fresh perspective. Um, there's a fresh outlook on things. And she's really, I think, carried me across that finish line with that childhood trauma again, that I just really didn't realize I was still holding onto until this past year. And the, the turning point for me was, um, I had a conversation with my brother probably back in April and, I mentioned, um, you know, the, the childhood trauma, like just the abuse, um, when we were kids and asked him if he remembered that. And he said that he did. He said that it's actually, this broke my heart. He said that this was, um, if he thinks back on like, you know, you think back in childhood and like your first memories, he's like, that's the first memory I have of childhood. Wow. That broke my heart. I was like sobbing. Um, and he said, oh my God, he said two statements to me that still, even when I think of it, and I still repeat these to myself, um, he said, mom and dad were a hundred percent at fault for this happening and they failed both of us. And I took the next day off of work. I mean, that conversation just I laid in bed that night and I just kept repeating that in my head because I didn't realize like nobody had ever told me it wasn't my fault. And there was something very important to me to hear, to have him say that. Um, and it's like, shit, I mean, 40 years, like I waited for somebody to be like, and you know, it's unfortunate that my mom died because I, I, I would like to think that I would have had this. I mean, that's one regret that I have, um, obviously I regret her dying. Like, you know, I, I wish she was still here, but I wish, I wish I would have been ready to have the conversation with her about what happened before she died. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't ready to have that conversation until I was a bit older until I, I think, you know, I had processed maybe a little bit more or just kind of those memories started like popping back up. And I was just like, you know, I, I never really got the answers on like, why charges weren't pressed or why, why, you know, what were you thinking? Like what conversations were had with the adults in the family and, you know, the therapy and all of this, like, I, I just wish I would have gotten her perspective on it. So, um, I'm in the process of, I need to write her a letter about it and, you know, maybe burn it. I don't know. <laughs> um, just to kind of get my thoughts down and, and let her know my side of the story. Unfortunately, I'll never know like her perspective on it. I know that this was something that really bothered her, obviously. Um, I know it was something that she probably wished, you know, that never happened. Nobody wants this to happen to their kids. And I know that in my perspective that she made every attempt to protect me after that. But I think unfortunately, you know, that the trauma was done and I still carried this like distrust of adults. So, you know, I, I, I found myself in like bad relationships with guys as a result of this. I really think back and think, you know, I, 
there was a part of me without realizing it that felt like I was broken or damaged or that I wasn't good enough to be with anything better. So I was in, you know, some abusive relationships. Um, and so you think like, okay, I was abused when I was a kid and now I'm being abused as an adult. Like what, what's going on? A lot of it was me. You know, I, I got myself into these situations and then didn't really have the tools I needed to, or the confidence that I needed to, to get out of it. And also, like, if you took 40 years to re to be told to let go of, you know, this idea that it was your fault, then there's a part of you, especially as a six-year-old, that's like, I deserve this. Mm -hmm. And that even as an adult, you're like, well, uh, clearly this is what I deserve because it keeps happening to me. Right. No one's ever told me until your brother did yeah. that, like, that's not the case. It was not your fault child sexual abuse is so very confusing because it actually it, in the cases of abuse happening you would want your body to respond in the most protective way possible which is you know not to like shut down and have it be painful um so so then there's this huge dissonance between this feels wrong it's like i know this shouldn't be happening but it actually doesn't feel like physically feel bad and maybe this is what love is and then this is a person who professes to take care of me. Keep your parents aside of it. This is a person who's supposed to be taking care of me. And except for this thing, they are. Like, they're not beating me with rods, right? Here, here's a snack. Here's a this. Let's go. Whatever it is that's happening. Everything becomes so enmeshed in, a, in you know, when that happens so young that then you, you start to replicate those patterns over and over again, which is love has to be slightly painful. Mm -hmm. It should feel wrong in your head because that's what love is. Yeah. And someone else was in control. Yes. All of those things. And it was a caretaker. This must be what taking care of someone is because that's their job. Your parents were together, right? So your dad was involved too. Have you processed, like you're not able to process this with your mom because of her untimely passing, but have you processed any of it with your dad? I know that you said your relationship is somewhat strained. So my recollection of things is, you know, once I told my parents what was going on, my brother said something in front of them. My brother was never um, touched or molested or anything like that. So this babysitter like walked out of the bathroom one night and had his pants down. And so my brother, who at the time is like three or four, turned around and was like, pull your pants up. So like, that's his memory of that. Um, he found out, he didn't know at the time what was going on with me that he was like coming into my room at night. But years later, I think somebody in the family told him, I don't know if it's my parents or, you know, my uncle, whatever he made a comment in front of my mom and I was like trying to shush him. And my mom was like, what's going on? And so I started crying and this was a, among, you know, during the time that I was like sleepwalking and like suddenly wetting the bed and I was getting in trouble for wetting the bed. Cause it was like, my parents didn't know, like, it was like, why, why is this happening? I remember my parents and my dad came home from work and they brought me into their room and like sat me on the vanity in the master bedroom, like the bathroom, and they were both standing in front of me. 
I mean, I just remember this so clearly and I felt like I was getting in trouble. And I, I told them, you know, what was going on and they both hugged me and I think they were crying. And that was all of my dad's involvement. Mm. That was it. And so after that, you know, my, when I would go to like these therapy sessions, my mom brought me, my mom was the one waiting, you know, while I was in the, the sessions and whatnot. And so she would kind of, I remember, you know, in the car, obviously on the way home, just kind of, so how did it go? How do you feel? Like just trying to get a gauge and, you know, me being so quiet by nature anyway, you know, I didn't, I don't remember sharing a whole lot with her. I think the most I probably shared is that I told her I didn't like going. (laughs) Um, But, you know, eventually um, that kind of led to piano because again, my mom, I think trying to attempt to, you know, give me something that she felt I needed. Um, And in her mind, it was an outlet. Uh, because I was so quiet and so she felt like maybe music would be this outlet so I mean it turned into like okay I found this great talent that I had and played piano you know all the way through college but my dad had no involvement my dad you know after that initial conversation that was it and so when I was about 25 I did approach him and ask about it and his first comment to me was I can't believe you still remember that. And I was like, of course, of course I remember it. I remember every single thing that happened from that event. The only thing that I don't remember, and I think this is kind of a coping mechanism, you know, from trauma or childhood, but his, he doesn't have a face anymore. Mm. And he hasn't had a face for a long time. I, I, I don't remember like any features about him, you know, I just remember him as this person. So I think that that's kind of like a, I don't know if it's a defense thing or protection thing or whatever, but I said, I remember everything that happened and I remember the way that I felt. And I mean that, no, that definitely doesn't go away. So I did ask him, I said, you know, I, I do want to know, and I would have had this conversation with mom, but why wasn't anything done? And he said that they were more concerned about my well-being and getting me okay because, you know, obviously I was suffering at that point. And they felt that if they were to like pursue pressing charges and stuff that I, it would, I would have to talk to way more people about this, you know, and my side of the story, whether it be attorneys or police officers or, you know, whatever avenue they decided to pursue. And so they, they put me into therapy to like, kind of see how I did with that. And I don't know if he, I can't remember if he said that it was like the therapist recommendation to not do anything. I I find that hard to believe. And that may be just him, like kind of passing that off to someone else but you know from a guilt aspect or something but um but we also know that like we plant our own memories that might actually be what he remembers whether or not it happened his way of coping was to say oh the therapist recommended that we don't do that 
yeah, we're taking care of our daughter first. It is true that it can be re-traumatizing to, I mean, we know this from, you know, adult rape victims and uh, sexual assault victims where it's like, then you got to tell this person, then you got to tell this one, then you get to get up on the stand. And you're like repeating the story. And then, then you have to offer testimony. And then there's a lot of like, prove to us that this happened, which is very difficult for a child because already you feel crappy about what happened. Then you're having to talk about all the time. I was mortified, embarrassed, ashamed. Yeah. I felt like I had done something wrong. This is another memory I have from that. I remember telling my therapist this and I think it blew her mind, but I said, I remember knowing that he was coming over and I remember trying to pick out pajamas that I thought would be harder to take off. Mm. I'm like, that's a memory from six-year-old me. I mean, it's just, it's, it's like mind blowing. So, I mean, that's, I, I carried that alone. I, I, you know, I felt like, I, I guess I just felt like I couldn't go to my parents when this was happening. Cause I knew it was wrong. I just, I, my voice was taken. My voice was taken from me. And I think my voice was taken from me for many, many years after that and not even realizing it. Yeah. I mean, with my dad, he, I, I, I just don't think that he really wants to think about it. You know, and even when I brought it up, it was just like, oh, I can't believe you still remember that. Well, yeah, of course I do. I recognize now that I think what I needed was to be able to talk to my parents about it more, even into my like teenage years. And I didn't feel like I could. Because you were protecting them. Yeah. I was like parenting them. Yeah. Like I became like the caretaker in that situation you know, I didn't want to upset my mom. I knew it was upsetting. I knew that they had told my grandparents and it caused like a big fight with them because this person that was taking care of us was actually someone that my grandmother knew. It was her friend's grandson. So it's always somebody close to the family or most of the time the statistics show. Yeah. And from what my dad recalls, um, my grandmother, when they told her, she said, well, you know, what about this friendship that I have? Like, she didn't want it to affect her friendship. And my dad was like, but this is your granddaughter. What is it going to look like? Yeah. Yeah. And that was very much how my grandmother was. I mean, it was like, she wanted the perception of like this perfect family and that, that would ruin it. And so I think there was also that element of like my grandmother and my mom, you know, my grandmother had a very, very controlling relationship with my mom. And my mom and I talked about this when I was in high school. She's like, you know, if our relationship starts getting that way, I want you to tell me because I don't, my mom felt like she couldn't, I think her voice was kind of taken in a way from her mom, even though my mom was extroverted and talked a lot and, you know, always had all her feelings on her sleeve, (laughs) her heart on her sleeve. There was this, you know, element of like, she also wanted to please her mom and like, couldn't really speak back to her, speak up to her. And so I do think that there was some elements of control with them not pursuing, you know, any actions afterwards, other than obviously like not having him come over anymore. From that point, um, yeah, my dad, 
I just, I don't think that, I think I got some of the answers. I think that's all I'll get out of him. And I just have to make peace with that, which I feel like I have. Um, I think that my mom, you know, the conversation I would have had with my mom, I imagine it to have been, you know, much more emotional um, and being able to, you know, tell her how I felt or tell her exactly what happened. Um, and I just didn't get that opportunity. So I'm, I'm working on a letter <laughs> and, and processing through that. But it's honestly, I think reaching out and asking for help in 2021 was one of the best things that I could have done for myself. I didn't realize how much help I actually needed until I was in the program and just, I mean, they even said that you were like the ideal patient. You were here every day on time. You did all the work you were supposed to, because I was just like, it, I wanted it. I was ready to receive the information yeah. and I wanted the information. Yeah, you're and like, I did make that's like, I, I'm craving this. I need to move through this right and I remember talking to the therapist after you know one of the group sessions and I said you know I just I there's part of me that wishes I would have done this a long time ago and she said you can't think of it that way you came here at the right time when you were ready to receive the information and had you come years ago you might not have been ready to receive the information so it, it may not have had the impact you know so I that gives me a little bit of peace in thinking like, okay, I moved through this in my own time, but yeah, you know, you always kind of think like, oh, what if, you know? Did the conversation with your brother, that very impactful conversation, did that happen before or after you were in the outpatient program? After. So I did the outpatient in January of 21 and I had that a conversation with my brother in April of 22. So it took a while, like, cause I got the new therapist and then she kind of brought me through like full circle on, on the, the childhood abuse, because I was always, you know, when I was, when I first started therapy, I just thought all my problems went back to my mom dying and that that's what impacted me so profound, which it did, but I was forgetting that element of the child. So I, I mean, in the beginning of therapy, I, I would mention it in passing. I'd be like, oh yeah, there was some, you know, sexual abuse when I was a kid, but I went to therapy for that. And I processed through that when I was a kid. So I think I'm good with that. So I, it was something that I never really like talked about. And then this new therapist, I think in some of the, the conversations and, you know, stories that I was telling her, and then we were kind of like tying it back to that. And then it was like, oh, okay, so this has actually not really fully been processed. And that was impacting like not only that yeah. event, but then also my mom passing, which was also trauma traumatic. Yeah, well, it's just one thing upon the other upon the other. It kind of muddled the waters. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely did. And that as people, as human beings, I think we can generally manage to function through... A I think we're designed to function through a certain amount of trauma. Right. G given that, you know, we didn't exactly come from, you know, utopia back in the day, right? There was a lot of disease, a lot of famine, a lot of war, people fighting and people dying and all kinds of, like, it was traumatic. Fighting off animals or whatever it is. There's a lot of trauma um, just in being a person, being alive. And so- 
I think we are designed to function through a certain amount of trauma. That's true, like the baseline, right? And then you're dealing with, I think it is also, I think, traumatizing to have a parent push something on you, even if it's for your own good, even if they are doing it because they believe that it will help you. But, you know, it sounds like your mom had this vision of like what you needed and kept pushing you toward it and and not even asking you like, are you okay? Do you feel like you want to be with a bunch of people or are you like really happy here? <laughs> um, you know, reading a book and then your mom passed and then, you know, you've had trouble with your dad and then, and then like, and then, so like by the time 2020 rolls around, it's like, I can't, I'm to the point of breaking, right? I can't handle anymore. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, that was definitely my experience. <laughs> right, and you unpack all the stuff at the top and you move that away. But if you don't get rid of the stuff at the bottom, it just keeps piling up over and over again. I am, I get, have goose, I'm, I am so proud of you for taking yourself to the fucking hospital. Like that, it, that's a hard, hard thing. And a lot of times, like I work in mental health and a lot of times people take themselves to the hospital because they're suicidal. They're like, I'm going to hurt myself and I don't want to. I felt like I was heading there and that's what was scaring me because I'm like, I'm not okay. My hand, I mean, like literally my hands were shaking. Like I, I all day long, I'm crying all the time. And it's like, I can understand how you could easily slip down that rabbit hole of like, I don't have any other options and I, I want to stop feeling this way. It's not, I, but you don't want to die, but you're like, if this is the way to be living, I don't want to do it anymore. And so a lot of times people do not take themselves to help until they're at the breaking point. And you did it before that. I mean, you saw the path you were taking and you're like, this is not the way I want to live and took yourself like that. That takes so much self-possession. It does. Yeah. It's huge. Thank you. And I kind of want to go to brain school. (laughs) I know I honestly I said that I was like why don't they teach this in school like there should be a class for like these skills that they're teaching and it should just be brain school I don't know (laughs) well there's like now I will say like I have an eight-year-old and she'll she's got a high schooler gross and a um (laughs) and a sixth grader I mean it's gross that they're already in high school um yeah but they do a lot more, it's called SEL, right? So it's uh, social emotional learning. Okay. See, we didn't have that. We did not have that. No. I was like, I was like, I really want to be in the upper level algebra class. Like that was my, when it came to school. Right. Like when my parents went to a parent teacher conference and if a teacher was like, oh, coach is really kind. She's really empathetic. She has some anxiety. My parents would have been like, okay, that's cool. How's she doing in math? Now, like parent-teacher conferences are really different. I want to know, like, is my kid getting along with other people? Is she acting uh, erratically? Like, is she being kind? Those, there has been a shift in parenting. But still, I mean, that doesn't mean that you, like, just because we're a product of our time doesn't mean it's okay. Yeah. And it's definitely, I think, something that we have to overcome a little bit more than, you know, the 
the future generations that are kind of getting a little bit more that, you know, they're understanding a little bit more about mental health and, you know, talk, it's, it's more normalizing talking about it, you know, after the, the IOP program that I did, I was so excited uh, about how, how I felt afterwards and how much better I felt and just these skills that I had kind of learned and absorbed while I was there that it was like, you know, I was telling everybody about it. I was like, yeah, I just, I did a mental health program. It wasn't like, I was ashamed, like, oh, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest over here. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I was telling everybody about it. And I was just like, yeah, I went and did this and I recommend it. And, you know, I've, I've had people you know, I've had the same kind of reactions where, you know, everybody I that I've told about it has been supportive. Surprisingly, um, you know, I was afraid to tell my brother. So again, I, I think I mentioned before, you know, very blue collar family. And I remember as a kid, it's like, oh, come on, just get over it. You know, you're too sensitive. And so my brother, who is a fireman and, you know, puts up garage doors, he's just tough. <laughs> like, I think he... Um, he cried. I I saw him cry once after our mom died. And I think that was about it, you know, but he, you know, when I told him, I think it was probably the third day I was in the IOP and he, he must've called. And so I kind of mentioned it to him that, you know, I took FMLA because of stress and anxiety and told him kind of what was going on and what I was doing. And he was like, okay, you know, and then a couple of days later, he called me, he was on his way to work and it was around eight in the morning. I was on my way to the hospital. So he calls and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm on my way to the hospital. He's like, why? What's wrong? I said, <laughs> Remember? Mike, I'm, I'm going every day. And he's like, oh, so like, I, I just, there was a part of it that like, I don't think he really understood, but at the same time, you know, I, I said to a friend of mine, I'm like, you know, it, it's his way of being supportive. <laughs> Because, you know, my brother, if I say like, hey, yeah, it's stress and anxiety, it's like, well, what are you on your period or something? You uh, know, I mean, yeah, like, that would be the question. I'm like, oh, no, that's not it. Yeah, I mean, there was a part of like, he didn't understand what I was doing, but he knew that I was getting help and that I had taken FMLA. Um, since then, like I said, this conversation that I had with him and those statements that he made about our parents. And then he said to me, I can understand, you know, why you feel the way you do towards our dad. And I can understand, you know, he's like, I I don't know exactly how you feel, but he's like, if this, if this bothers you, he's like, you know, you can always talk to me about it. So that conversation, I mean, it was, it was, I took the next day off work. I I had to sit with that information because it just, it it like ripped through me. I mean, it just, it, it ripped through me. And the next day, I mean, literally I had the blinds closed. I was in the dark all day, just like numb watching whatever on TV, because I was like, I, I just need to sit with this information and I need to, you know, and I went back to work the next day and, you know, I was fine. And since then, it it really has been this shift in feeling a huge sense of, I think, relief, because it's not my fault that this happened. And I think for many years, I, I felt guilty and felt like it was it was my fault. Um, I think, I think that comes from like, the fact that I didn't speak up, or I didn't do anything to stop it. So then 
suddenly it shifts and it, it makes it, it's like, it's your fault because you didn't do anything. But I was six. I didn't even know what sex was. I didn't even know, yeah. you know what I mean? So it's like, I don't even know what's happening to me. I just know that it's not right. But you also did do things to try to stop it in a six-year-old's world, putting difficult to take off pajamas. That True. is my way of fighting this. Yeah, It's too big. So what can I do in my little world? I'm going to put on difficult pajamas, right? And I, oh my God, I, Shulsha, do you remember Kate? Um, we had this amazing a guest on. Her husband had said, guilt is like a bag of bricks. You just got to put it down. But I would say you also sometimes have to be told or given the permission. It's okay to put it down. You're right. It was, yeah, it was the permission, I think, or just the the statements from my brother where it was like, I let go of the bag, finally. The next day I was like, okay, so what is this new feeling that I'm feeling? Because, I mean, I've, I've carried this now, I realized for much longer, and it was very, very heavy for so long. And I had just gotten used to that. Yeah. You know, so now it's like acclimating to this new world of I don't have this. And I can say that it, I feel like there's been a shift in my mindset towards other adults as a result. I can't say that it's like, oh, I a hundred percent trust them now. Yay. <laughs> it's more of, I feel for the first time in my life that I am an adult. I didn't have that feeling before or that these people are my peers. They're not like above me. They're not controlling me that I'm on the same level now. So I think for a long time, like I was stuck kind of in somewhat of not a six-year-old mindset, but there were elements of me that were still stuck in six years old and just feeling like I can't speak up and I, you know, you have to be the good kid and do what people expect of you. Whereas now I'm like, I'm going to do what I want, regardless of what somebody else thinks. And if they have a problem with it, I mean, that's their problem to process through as long as I'm being respectful and I'm taking care of myself and I'm being kind to people. I think you like you were probably stuck in a six year old mindset in some ways. And then the next trauma was, you know, your your mom passing. So you were stuck in a 19 year old mindset, which still like you're technically an adult, but you'd have, you know, like you're definitely still a kid, right? Like you're right, a teenager. Yeah. And yeah. every trauma that happened, and this is just my armchair, right? Like psychology, but every trauma that happened to you happened with an adult in your life. Right. So it's like, it's always someone with more responsibility or that had some yes. kind of control over you in some way. And yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a lot of bricks. Yeah. And then I think I still carried that, you know, like people pleaser where like, I, you know, I wanted to keep my mom happy. And then once my mom was gone, it was like still trying to keep other adults happy, but not really being authentic to myself. Did you mention to me once that like after, even after your mom passed, you were making decisions based on what your mom would have wanted? Yeah. Through my twenties, um, probably into my thirties. Yeah. There were a lot, cause I was just so lost after she died. I literally, you know, I had just started school at Bradley was kind of coming into like my own as an individual as you know that transition into adulthood and I remember you know the conversations with my mom you know even after she was diagnosed with the the brain tumor they were more adult conversations you know we were just starting to have like it kind of transitioned a little bit from like 
the parent kid relationship. And I was just getting a taste of that and it was cut short. Mm -hmm. So then I think it just kind of reverted me back to what would my mom wanted me to do now that she's gone? Like I still have to finish school and I still have to do this. And I, you know, she would want me to do this. And I know my brother also, um, we've talked about it where, you know, we talk about other people our age, um, even when we were younger, where, you know, they're complaining about things and, (laughs) you know, their first world problems or whatever, but like, they're still living at home with their parents or they have supportive parents that maybe like buy them a house or help them buy a house or help them kind of like into adulthood. For my brother and I, that was cut. Like at the, me at the age of 18, him at the age of 16, it was like, you sink or swim at that point. And both of us, I think as like in an honor to our mom's memory, there was so much that she taught us in such a short period of time that we wanted to make her proud. So it was like, we can't fail, you know, or I I look at, you know, I've got a cousin who struggles with like drug addiction and different kids with different people and like all these things. And it's like, people would have looked at me and done like, oh, well, her mom died when she was young and she just got so lost and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like, I think of that where like my brother and I, like we didn't have that. I mean, I got lost in, in different ways, obviously. Like I, I did get into bad relationships, but I was always working and I was always trying to make sure that, you know, there was some element of like what I thought of as successful being, that meant being able to take care of myself. And so we've always, I think, just been very independent, my brother and I. Um, I'm still single, so. <laughs> I, and I, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, people ask me that too. And, and now I think, you know, in this mental health journey, it's kind of given me clarity into, I could not have had a successful relationship with someone else until I worked through all of this. And I had always, you know, when I was younger, I did imagine having children, having a family. Now at this age, I would not want to start a family at this age, one. <laughs> um, I, that just sounds annoying. Um, <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think it gives me clarity also where I was like, you know, if I had had a kid when I was like 20, this would have just put this all to the back burner even more so. And I may have never worked through it. I may have struggled with this for the rest of my life because, you know, when you have a kid, then you're like, your priority becomes them and their well-being and not your own as much, you know, at least for the first period of their lives until they become more independent. So it does give me clarity and peace in the, the journey that I've been on as to why things happen the way that they did. And it, it was mm-hmm. kind of like unlocking this key to my past of wow. Okay. Now I understand more. Yeah. Yeah. That is a, it's a heavy story. Thank you for sharing it with us. In the interest of not wanting to make you cry again (laughs) and, um, just, you know, really putting a bow on it. Um, I, I really don't have words. I think I never knew how deep this went with you and what you know what bricks you were carrying around nobody knew I didn't even know (laughs) the idea of you know investing in your own health and we talk about investing in your own health but mental health being part of that 
Mm-hmm. Um, Shilshi, do you want to go and ask your second to last question? Well, yeah. So the second to last question we always ask people is, you know, what advice do you have or would you offer someone who might be sitting where you were two years ago and saying, something isn't right, something has to change? Yeah, I um, I would say I, for years, I think had this feeling of, I think this is just as good as it gets for me. This is just how I am. Um, if anybody's having those kind of thoughts and, you know, maybe struggling with finding happiness or struggling with finding joy, for me, it was struggling with even sometimes like day-to-day tasks where I, I mean, after I had gone through the IOP program, realizing that I walked around 90% of the day with my shoulders up to my ears and just kind of like ready, like very like on the edge of being triggered all the time. Whereas like now it's like, okay, I can, I, I say that the meds have made me friendlier because I, you know, as an introvert, typically would just go in and to a store, grocery shopping, get my stuff, get out of my way. You're annoying me and get out. And now I'm like, I talk to people, which I'm like, this is new. I never like struck up conversations, you know? Um, But if you're having those thoughts of like, it's, you know, I'm, I'm just not feeling like I'm at my best self. I'm not, I'm, I'm struggling to find joy or happiness. I'm struggling to find you know, some kind of peace, you know, maybe, maybe look into that. I reach out there, there are resources out there that I don't think people know about the IOP programs that a lot of the mental health facilities have. You know, I, I always thought that if you were seeking mental health support, that it was, you know, it meant inpatient. And I think that probably drives a lot of people away. There are other programs. There's IOP programs. There's a couple different ones that, you know, you can do what I did where you go every day and it's a group setting and you you work through things. It was highly beneficial. Um, again, it was like going to brain school. Um, I can't really speak to like what the experience is with the, the other version of IOP where it's kind of, it's still intensive, but it's only like a couple times a week. And I think prior to COVID, they were also meeting in person. It was just like a, a same kind of like group setting meeting for a couple times a week, maybe a couple hours instead of the daily for, you know, almost the entire day. So there, there are options out there, um, whether or even whether that be, you know, getting in touch with a therapist and maybe even expressing some of the concerns that you're having about, you know, I'm struggling. I'm, I don't think that I'm, I'm really that happy or, you know, there's, there's resources out there that I don't think that people really no, or they're just scared. Don't let it get to the point that you're thinking of taking your own life. I, I feel like I was headed down that path just with the the physical symptoms I was having and just the, the general overall feelings. And it was like that thought kept popping into my head, like, well, you could just end it. And I would immediately like answer that thought in my head that, you know, in, internal critic or whatever you want to call it. But I would immediately answer. I was like, no, that's not the answer. But I didn't want to get to a point where I was like, okay, yeah, that's the answer. I I was like, it was bothering me enough that that thought kept popping into my head just, and it would come out of nowhere. It would just, it wasn't like I was consciously like thinking that it was just like, well, you could, you could end it. You could take your own life. This should just be over. And I would immediately be like, no, don't let it get to the point where you're saying yes, reach out. Yeah. If it's popping into your head on a regular basis, I know sometimes making the phone call can be the hardest 
thing to do, dialing the phone and reaching out and saying, I need help. It's, it's super vulnerable. It's mentally exhausting. I mean, just even dialing the phone and making the phone call, I, I, you know, would hang up the phone and cry, but I don't think that there would be somebody who could say that they would regret it if by making a call, sometimes that call could just be to a friend to like, you know, bounce your ideas off of, or maybe get their perspective. And maybe that friend could offer some advice, you know, whatever it may be, whatever avenue you take for your mental health, don't be afraid to reach out. That's very good advice for us all. Uh, so we always end with um, the same question. It started in, you know, the first season we did uh, first generation Americans and it just became this funny thing about like, oh, my mom use this, uses this Indian word, it, you know, incorrectly or whatever. Um, but it's become this really cool idea of connection, right? And, and it's so the, the idea of familact, which is like words, phrases, a lot of times invented words that we use with our own inner circle. And, you know, you talking about your mom, I just am like, it, it's not just shared stories with who we have in our lives now, but can remind us of who we have had in our lives, right? So um, can you give us some examples of your personal femelect? Yeah, so this was the... Uh the word my mom used, um, <laughs> she'd say, can you hand me the canoocher? And we always knew what that was, the TV remote. <laughs> I still say that, like, and I, I say it to my nephew and like, he's never heard that word before, but he knows what I mean. I'm like, yeah, hand me the canoocher. That's the TV remote? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and I don't know where my mom came up with that. She's like, I don't, I mean, I think we asked her, you know, when we were kids and she was like, I don't know. It's just the canoocher. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't even, I mean, finding a word up. with the word, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I would have guessed that would have been something like a doodad or a doohickey, you know, just sort of like a. So she, what does Justin use? Your husband uses, there it is. There's a canoocher. Tweedles and doodles, tweedles and doodles. Get, use the tweedle. Okay. Everything's a tweedle. Everything's a tweedle. It means like the thingy. Okay. It's and every family has some version of that, right? Regardless of where you're from. It's always some sort of like, you know, the thing. Right? And it's always, <laughs> it's always like more complicated than the, the word itself. Like canoocher is, it's more complex than just saying the remote. Right. <laughs> and it, it may have just been like, she was couldn't get the word out at the time and then she just kept calling it that yes <laughs> yeah yeah you know you know that the canoocher and then it just became the canoocher instead of being like that's the remote <laughs> and it's the only thing that was called a canoocher was the remote that was the word for it yeah see that's pretty impressive the funny thing is people are like what's a canoocher but they know to hand you the remote because <laughs> probably because you're usually like gesturing it's like hey hand oh, me the canoocher yeah, and right. pick it up and that i we need to do an experiment be in a place where you're watching tv ask for the canoocher and see what people give you right because also there's a bit of like the lamp, yeah. the lamp. <laughs> right, right. Not that. like like what what could you hand somebody oh my god i'm gonna do an experiment that's awesome 
You should try it with me the canoocher. <laughs> you should you should try it with your with your kiddo and see how she responds. Yeah. Also, she would just take it in stride because you make up so many weird That's true. things. You've got words and nicknames and all kinds of things. Yes. So then she just oh, whatever. Here you go. It's yeah. another weird thing that mom does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that yeah, way it was probably I like the first TV we had that had a canoocher. <laughs> um prior to then, I mean when I was really young, we had the TV that like had the dial. Yeah. Right. You know, and like if my parents wanted to change the channel, they'd be like, go change the channel for Yes. <laughs> How would you even do that nowadays though? Well, especially with smart TVs, I guess you can't. Uh, I don't even think there's buttons anymore other than like a power button. Yeah, there's a power button. I have loved this conversation. Dawn apparently is able to read the minds of like how this podcast was going to go because it just was like the smoothest. Good. Inter- like I didn't even have to, we didn't really have to do any interviewing. Koshin, I kind of in- offered some comments here and there, but you just told your story so beautifully. Thank you. you really this is my first podcast. Oh, <laughs> really? Yay. Yeah. Oh, well, we're I know. Glad I was to like super excited. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and before we had started recording, you said like, I, when you decided to do the podcast, you decided like that I'm just going to jump all in. I'm going to tell my story. And, and you really, really did. And in a way I will say like, I think a lot of people would, have wanted to blame right like my parents did this i this happened to me with a babysitter then my mom died like just a lot of external locus right like or focus and and you did not like there's a things happen to you but you really talked in a place of first person and empowerment and that's that's a difficult thing to do thank you I love you. I'm so glad that we've reconnected. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the invite. And, you know, I, I hope that, you know, if if it just reaches one person who, you know, maybe feels kind of the same way or has gone through some similar experiences that it makes an impact. That it will. I'm yes, that it will. That I think it definitely will. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Take care. Bye. Bye.